what you have Leave your worries on the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street Don't you hear the pitter-pat And that happy tune is your step Life can be so sweet On the sunny side of the street Welcome back to the Drawing Your Own Path podcast here in January 2018, right near the end of the month. Well, with travel and jet lag and sick children and catch-up work, I almost didn't make it this month, but here I am back on the sunny side of the street. And I spent a day in Manhattan last December on the sunny side of 26th Street talking to Marianne Strendel about her exhibition... As part of the group show Solace, she had the front room. It was a beautiful wall painting and lenticular print installation, along with some other work there. You'll hear us in the gallery. You'll hear the trucks going by on the street. You'll hear people coming in and out. And indeed, the interview ends with us sort of joining an impromptu party, all her friends coming by to see the work. She's a wonderful artist. I really enjoyed talking to her. I've known her for a long time. It's part of the art scene in Manhattan, and it was uh, really great to get a chance to talk to her and highlight her work. And I'm really enjoying doing the podcasts and talking to people that I know because it's a more directed talk. I can really ask questions and really get into the nitty-gritty of the creative process and the spiritual sides of the creative process. And I think artists really enjoy talking about it and having a good time. And I'm looking forward to conducting many more interviews in the spring. I've got some already recorded and some scheduled. So um, just can't wait to bring you those. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, there's several ways you can do it that are absolutely free. Just go to iTunes, give us five-star rating. That'd be wonderful. Write a little review if you have the time. That helps get exposure for the podcast. Uh, When I advertise it on Facebook, uh, you know, uh, share it, like it spread it around. There's a Facebook group just for uh, drawing your own path for uh, people who are doing daily artwork, daily um, contemplative drawing, and who want to join up with others in a community. There's lots of stuff that goes on there. Just ask to join Drawing Your Own Path on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram at Drawing Your Own Path. You can can like that. (laughs) You can follow that, whatever you have to do. It's also very good. And the book, Drawing Your Own Path, of course, which inspired all this, is still for sale on Amazon if you don't have a copy. And if you do, uh, please go and write a review there. It really helps get uh, exposure for the book. So thank you for listening. I do very much appreciate uh, your listening to this podcast. So here I bring you uh, my interview with Mary Ann Strandell. Mary Ann Strandell. Hello, Marianne. <laughs> How Hi. are you? Hi there, John. I'm doing great. Thank you. I found out about the show from your Facebook postings. Oh, fantastic. And uh, the theme of the show is really something that attracted me uh, as someone who's interested in sort of the inner work and the inner processes uh, that artists go through. And I came to see the show, and we talked about it, and it turned out that, yeah, that's also your fascination and a place where you work. So I felt like it was a good idea to talk further. So here we are. Oh, wonderful. So you uh, wrote something out? You have a statement? Yeah, I did try to clarify uh, my various ideas that I brought together 
for this installation and yeah so um, starting in the in around 2007 um, I, I was working with this notion of uh, transversing time in some respects this notion of a multiverse and I had been trekking over a longer period of time the history of the French chinoiserie and different aspects of that, from wallpaper to porcelain collections to the chandeliers. When, when was that period, the chinoiserie? The chinoiserie was really in the 1700s, and it was uh, something that evolved through the rise of the bourgeoisie and the European culture. And, and when, it's about decoration, it's about, and it's about ho- Yeah, and ownership, but also the chinoiserie means about China. Ways in which these different motifs and influences from various countries were being materialized and actualized, either made in the country of origin or then those particular um, stylistic ideas were being transformed into European goods. So, so there was an influx into Europe at that time of, of new cultural symbols? Indeed. Indeed, uh, yes. From the East? Yes. And, and, and is, there, is there a parallel to today, or what's interested um, you in it? What particularly interested in me, it, it was a number of different things. One was the economy, the economy of the trade to begin with, and how the, that kind of movement was, had such a stylistic changes um, in, within a culture. And the chinoiserie was so fascinating uh, because of its use of the decorative on one hand, but also really its use of uh, a kind of very upbeat uh, flavor. So I remember some time ago going into some of those huge historic palaces. I was at the Esterhazy Palace in Hungary at some point around 96, and I went into the first time I'd ever really seen a chinoiserie room where the whole wall, every wall was covered with hand-painted motifs of these very fantastical scenes that were both um, sort of emperor-like and also had um, just a really interesting ways of which they were talking and discussing ideas of uh, kind of ex-crazy lands and things to be explored. Um, anyway, that was, I was just really struck by it, and I, that was one of the early beginnings of trying to reiterate that within the work. Okay, so that's the origins of the period rooms. Period rooms and my longer interest with the chinoiserie and then fast forward to even my interest in these, the notion of the trading, trading route and trading, uh, trading ideas, trading motifs. Um, and so to take it even strangely further, when I, I was a undergrad, I had spent four years, one day a week, working as a conservator in a small ethnographic museum in the Upper Midwest. And my job was to basically take care of um, items that were within the collection that ranged everything from Sioux Indian artifacts to the Swedish immigrants to vaults of stuffed birds that I was um, to repair and handle and drawers and drawers of beetles and all kinds of classifications of things. So there was this wonderful um, relationship I had to just the museology, the way in which we create a kind of taxonomy of things and a nomenclature around that, which has always been inherent in the work. And although I'm digressing, I will fast forward no, back up fine. here. I'm to, enjoying a, oh, thank it's you. A, great, a great background story so yeah, far. Yeah, thank you. 
And so in, interestingly enough, um, those uh, different terminologies still play within my own thinking, in my own creative process. Is it a bird? Uh, does it come from a photograph? Does it come from a field guide study? Is it a period piece room? Well, the Frick Museum, I'm crazy about the Fragonard and the um, Boucher rooms within the Frick, for example, but they're, but they're not in France. They have been a, in a sense, duplication of something, right? right? So I've been schooled through the 80s and into the early 90s where we had a lot of conversations about authenticity and the art, the author, and mm. the notations of where something comes. And <clears throat> um, so I'm very interested in, in that and in the, in the kind of semiology of that as well. And so fast, fasting forward or slowly moving forward um, to, to actually make a drawing on a wall, scaled up, very large in scale, of particularly a, a, a room and a space that has an already significant historic um, signifier to it. It changes the, our relationship by experiencing it as a photograph, as an actual room, as a duplication, um, what country it's in, all of the ways in which we have even our own kind of nomenclature of significance of experiencing something is augmented or changed no yeah. matter where that's at. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm looking at this wall, which has a probably 15, 16 feet square, uh, and Marianne has, I guess you were on a ladder or a lift or something like ladder. that? A big ladder. She's gotten all the way to the ceiling and to the side walls with um, what it looks like acrylic paint uh, yep. put on with a brush. Correct. Uh, and beautiful leaf. Uh, forms and birds and uh, it's a it's a big mural right on the wall uh, and it does really transform the space as you stand and it really dominates uh, the room it, it causes you to look all around and up but it, it does feel like uh, it calls attention to the room itself and then in front of that is uh, hung some other work so I don't know if you're about ready to talk about that yet but uh, uh, so the other works it's, that are on there yeah. is a is a high tech media. So you so the background, which I will chat about just in a little bit as well. But the uh, the lenticular media is a very mediated uh, piece of art. It it takes it involves uh, technology and optics and high end printing and fabrication and the. Um, the piece that it's located within the uh, wall around it, in a sense, is it's almost just its opposite. Oh, yeah. And that's which the sense I get I, for sure. Yeah, well, I get I get the the painting. Uh, yeah, is this histor looks historical, uh, and it's it's like a transformation of that through some filters and then put onto the this wall here in this gallery in New York. Yeah, and then another layer on top of that of this kind of very high tech, very colorful, lenticular work. Yeah. So I'll chat about the motif here. Okay. It's a large garden motif, and it's a compilation of seven different historic porcelain plates. So there were small paintings literally made on the middle part of the plate, the plate in which you would basically... Yeah, hand-painted, something you would eat off of. Oh, so yeah. I love this reference to the intimate, the domestic, and the hand. Um, 
And the particular garden motifs were from a uh, 12th century Chinese plate, oh. um, 17th century Japanese garden, uh, two gardens from the Netherlands, and another German saucer. Wow. So I loved that these were both um, Asian as well as European, which of course these two. Right, that's converged. where the trade was going on. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, and so I had put them together, the compilation of them. So you took parts, little flowers from some, leaves from Correct. some, and, and but so the composition is original to you. Yes, that's right. So it's truly a hybrid yeah, of these I'm various references. Yeah. And um, it, in and of itself, has a very Baroque feel, mm -hmm. even though it's not a Baroque room. Yeah. So um, I had enough time in the arduous space of two days yeah, to wow. um, <laughs> actually work on that drawing. That was busy, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And then I wanted something with the lenticular to be, like I was mentioning, uh, from a very different kind of orientation. Um, so the lenticular, yes, has a, it's mediated, like I mentioned, but what it also is, it's a very geometric, and it's geometry on top of geometry, and that particular um, design slash images of it are repetitious, and they relate to a very early series that began when I first moved to New York around 2001, and I was so taken with the... Um, the whole uh, verticality of an urban environment. Um, certainly the horizontality too, which I'm more familiar with because I really grew up on the flat plains, um, <clears throat> but also just the way in which one would navigate a place like this, both um, sort of imaginatively and physically through a kind of circuitry and mapping that is um, one is inevitably always kind of uh, living with. It's a kind of almost subconscious thing. And so it became, again, this conversation of layer on layer of these particles of streets and mapping. And um, I have used and reconsidered that particular mapping sort of modernist, postmodernist space and various different aspects of the work. It really relates to even very early paintings I was doing that were more about the divisionistic use of space, mm -hmm. a, um, you know, almost a sort of pointillist, active, very active uh, motion em employed and surface. And what do you think the that sort of contrast of time periods and styles? I mean, what what's coming out for you in that putting one in front of the other in these layers? You know, it's a it's a it's a great question. Um, when I was putting it together and thinking it through, one idea that I had was to, to take the grid of four lenticular panels um, and move them to the adjacent wall. But quite frankly, I wasn't sure how many walls I really had. Yeah. So um, I placed those four walls within that scale and within the scope yeah. of the large Baroque drawing. Yeah. And you know, I kept thinking that we as the audience members sort of insert one ourselves perhaps in that scale, in that scope of, of visual um, taxonomy somewhere or another. And um, so I, I took it further, quite frankly. I actually took the piece after the show was already hung and, the, and this whole space open, um, I, with, with the drawing so fresh in my mind and also with the lenticular section here with the pink and green and blue, I took and re-engineered the entire 
four panels into six very large lenticular panels. Oh, this is work you've done since then, on, yeah. on, on, back in the studio. Yeah, so okay. even like the next, by the end of the week, I was back in my, oh, my yeah. studio. So just having, having just put this piece together already, it's led to some new, some yeah, new work. Yeah, exactly. And is the, are the six panels in front of uh, hand painting as well? Yeah, so I, act, I completely oh, <laughs> reversed completely reversed the process right. and um, scaled up the panels so that the six uh, 3D lenticular panels with the verticality and the mapping uh, imagery would measure basically seven feet by eight feet wide. And then I took this large motif um, that I had already compiled for this exhibit and repainted it uh, yeah. on top of uh, the so lenticular. I'm seeing a picture here that, yeah. that maybe um, will be online. Yeah, and uh, and it's the the style of the lenticulars, the uh, more or less vertical rectangles of various colors and various depths. And on top of that, yeah, the, the, what was on the wall here in the gallery space is now painted on top of the, the lenticulars. Yeah. yeah. So what's fun is that the new piece really has a markation because when this show is done, the wall will get painted over. Right, the so, piece is done. Yeah, so the ephemera nature of the but wall piece. it's led to something more permanent. Yes, okay. exactly. So, so we um, arrive at your statement. <laughs> yeah, and so the statement, I, actually the whole time I was working on the piece and even a little bit prior, I'd been really going back and looking at a lot of... Um, 18th century poetry, 19th century poetry, and I've been particularly interested in Baudelaire's work, um, particularly the great pieces he's written, and, and living at a time which was, he was so racked by the modernist industrialization of the world, and um, he writes with such a passion for the human spirit, and the whole machine that is around him. That isn't just the machination of the machine, but the machination of culture and what he's seen. Um, so I will share with you a little bit of the statement that I wrote, um, and I may even just chat or share with you the Baudelaire piece, one of them. Um, so I'll start with the title of the installation is called For Baudelaire. And I write, um, For Baudelaire is a contemplative and performative installation which considers the notion of decentralized place through two distinct systems of experience, colon, the large-scaled hand-drawn garden motif with the counteractive mediated lenticular print panels. These two worlds host a fleeting aspect of time and place that is perhaps at once a waterfall, a street map, a transit system, a circuit, a song. And then I wrote a little more of a didactic, which says the garden motif is a montage from a long study of the garden genre meme, which I documented from the historic hand-painted porcelain plates over a number of years. This composite holds seven partial garden renderings that include 13th to 17th century China, Japan, Germany, and the Netherlands. The layered geometric lenticular presents a postmodern network of mapping and circuitry. These two worlds, still in their own orbits, coalesce a possibility in tandem with a reverie of sudden leaps. So that was a statement for the show, and then um, might be just fun in the homage to Baudelaire, to Charles Baudelaire. Um, 
this beautiful dedication, and his, he writes from his pen, who among us has not dreamt in moments of ambition of the miracle of a poetic prose, musical without rhyme, without rhythm, supple and staccato enough to adapt to the lyrical stirrings of the soul, the undulations of dreams, the sudden leaps of consciousness. This obsessive idea is above all a child of great cities, of the intersecting of their myriad relations. Right on, huh? Yeah, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> So good. So it's, um, again, you know, this notion of a kind of multiverse that I think we all live in, and somehow the way in which art allows both the maker and the viewer to um, transcend or to transpose into aspects of one's uh, imagination, uh, but also just the creativity of others and what, what those things bring us or take us to seems to be a kind of constant, wonderful evolution, I think, for all of us in our... Um, so that seems to be a kind of a meta-narrative along with the narrative of the imagery that you've uh, collected and the physical layer of the paint on the wall and the way you've manipulated the technology for the lenticular, you also kind of reach up into an oversight to see what that movement has to do with history and what it means for this moment in time to bring all that together. It's some reflection of this moment in time that, that all the cultures are sort of layered together. Yeah, it's really, tr it's really true, John. A kind of mashup that we've got in... Uh, through the excessive, you know, internet and not just social media, we have all these ways in which we are consumed or our attentions can be assumed. Yeah, and we see, we see like this, one layer of culture after another kind of continuously filtering toward us with no yeah. real overriding direction yeah. except the whims of the machine algorithms that put them together or our own whims of how we move through them. Yeah, and so that contemplative pause and that, you know, kind of comes through the sketchbook or even through, you name it, a walk in the park, a uh, walk through the museum, and, you know, well, very a, favorite, favorite place. Yeah, it's interesting to distill and freeze it here when you talk about the contemplative pause because galleries are, you know, sort of a place traditionally where you could have that you could have that introspection and that quiet and so to, to stop that flow of information into sort of one particular frame and then just call our attention to it I think accomplishes that yeah thank you so much it was um, it was really great to be part of uh, the conversation within this show and a very poignant theme of solace yeah so let's talk about solace and the theme sure. and your relationship to it sure um, it seems like at least for myself and that bigger and yet more um, sort of that expansive yet more intimate theme in and of itself is uh, very personal but it's also uh, so much about that romantic part, or maybe it's just the human part of us, that seeks some, some aspect of quiet somewhere in some place. And we all do it in different ways, you know. Um, I certainly can do it in a mediated space, and I certainly will obtain it through uh, my practice in the studio, 
and a very contemplative practice that's a kind of moving meditation that I've been involved in for years, which is yoga, um, both hatha yoga, and um, I do teach some vinyasana yoga, but I also am a big practitioner of, um, of kundalini yoga, which is an adage um, and a really wonderful kind of um, historic relationship too to ideas that come out of really uh, changing oneself from the inside out and um, allowing a place within oneself an immense amount of quiet and depth and connecting at one half one at one point to in a sense the earth and the other at the same time connecting to something much larger that we're we can't really quite grasp but only can project or you know imagine yeah, so what, what's your practice like there, the yoga and the kundalini practice that you do? Um, it's pretty consistent daily that I've, I find time to um, sit and meditate. And I start a series of um, movements and chants that are everything from kind of traditional um, posture is called one's called down dog, which is I like even put on a timer and spend at least five minutes a day, um, and then that will begin a series of other um, m- more rigorous movements of walking through um, sun salutations and breathing postures, and actually um, a whole kind of system of things. So. And te- is this, is this uh, a, a single system that you've studied, or is it something that you've put together from various traditions and um, practices that you've studied? Yes and yes. Okay. I, I really um, I started studying yoga years ago, 30 years ago, and I, it was only, it's been really in the last 10, 15 years that I'm way more consistent. And probably in the last eight years, I've, I really am at it about every, just about every day. Right. And I notice a big difference if I haven't actually taken time out to check in and breathe and stretch and go through a series of vinyasanas. Um, I just get really edgy or really, really spacey sure. or something. I understand. I understand. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a little more involved in all of it, but needless to say, there's, there, it is a part and, of a practice. Do you feel the same way about uh, studio work, sketching? Oh, my God. I, it's one of those, it's a great question, right? That how many days go by and, you're in, and I'll say, oh, I haven't really sat down and sketched anything. And uh, my husband, who's an artist, a wonderful sculptor, we have these conversations a lot. And and uh, he he's he, he he'll say, well, you know, you gotta let yourself off the hook because even when you're reading that art book or reading that poetry, you in a sense you're still actually involved. You're engaged in a creative space. Um, all said, I that's cool. I I think that's right on. Um, but like, so last night it was late and I knew I needed to have at least an hour after a really busy day of a bunch of things I had to take care of. And I went down to the studio and I'm working on these very large paintings. I have two studios. I have a studio here in this building, um, in the West Chelsea Arts Building, and then I have a studio at home. Um, and it's really also a big fabrication studio as well as where I really like to paint because it is very quiet and there's a lot of solace there. Yeah. But needless to say, I, so last night I'm, I'm like, oh my God. So I went downstairs and I'm working on these very large paintings and sure enough, I just 
was so happy. Yeah. I just like so I I partly because I'm in the middle of some paintings and I have a good sense of sort of where I want them to go, which isn't necessarily always the case with a lot of work. Some work can be more exploratory and then some work can be like this is part of a series. Sure. So anyway, I'm working on a, some pieces that are part of the series and it just felt really great to go um, be mixing these weird pinks and blues and grays and um, keep working them, keep working this surface and you know, keeping it, keep at it. Yeah, there's a kind of energy I think from meditation practice and a similar energy from studio practice that yeah. can't, can't be faked. It's something one should do. Like you can't live in it in your head. You have to do it. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. making art. Well, it's like making art. <laughs> it's all an inside job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, the world is a mess. It's always been a mess. And, and you know, all we can do is somehow really honor the space and time that we're in in, in this little little body. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little background on you. Sure. Where are you? came from, where you're born, your yeah. growing up experiences, your first involvements with art. Yeah, sort of thank you. Well, I, uh, I grew up in Watertown, South Dakota, and I'm from a large family. I have seven brothers and two sisters, wow. so I'm one of ten children, same mom, same dad. Yeah. Um, and I'm a middle, middle kid, and um, there was a lot of crafts that happened um, in my family, so I started painting and drawing as a child, as a little kid, just there in the corner, just putting all of the noise of the chaos in this household of so many people, and I just would make a bubble of a space in various rooms. So in the beginning, it was introspective, and it was also solace for you. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I had so many people help me that include, you know, my siblings saying, you know, this is how you use a scissors. This is, you know, how you use a pencil. This is how you, and, and certainly my mother too. She taught me how to sew. I was making my doll's clothes at the age of five with a sewing machine. Um, she taught uh, myself and my sisters how to cook. We were, so we were truly, um, um, very involved in all the domestic chores of running. I would think it's to benefit to have you guys <laughs> yeah, as I mean, capable you know, as possible. There were 12 of us. Um, but I also really loved drawing, and I loved um, working with cutting cloth and cutting paper and making all kinds of different things. And um, in my teenage years, my mom, I don't know where she got these particular... Um, kits, but I would get these kits of how to make things. And so even when I was about 15, I started working with early lenticular. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and it was, and it was uh, a butterfly lenticular. Now, yeah. of course, I've made some big girl butterfly <laughs> lenticular since, but um, I was also doing other things, you know, like, and so were my siblings. So like all my brothers were making car kits and, you know, there was just a real maker's, makerspace always happening at the Strandell house. And then we ended up having our neighbors, there were eight children in that family, and so we just colonized each other's spaces, So, which was terrific, um, living in a big house and growing up in a big house and living in a neighborhood where you could just run wild. So the one of the other solace bubble spaces that I was pretty actively making and doing was in nature. So I would actually find all these different camps, or that's what I would call them, forts, 
and um, carve out like the middle of a choke cherry tree and bring in all kind of like, rugs and books and that find make these little cubbyhole spaces and you know get my pals from around the hood to either you know some have some kind of game you know so there was a lot of that there was a lot of play um going on when I was getting out of high school the the one thing I really wanted to do with all of my savings from all the many jobs I had <laughs> so I was always working as well um, I wanted to buy a navy blue Carmen Ghia and move to San Francisco and go to art school. And my parents were not going to let their 17-year-old daughter move to California and live that far away from them. <laughs> so um, they had a lot of kids. Why not? <laughs> I know. That's. I thought that was so reasonable. But instead, they really wanted their daughter to go to the college an hour away, which their other siblings, had, their other children, had gone to. So I started out um, doing that, and it didn't last. I, I really was not in any shape to sort of focus. And um, so I quit school for a couple of years, and I lived in the East Coast with my oldest sister, who said, come and live with me in D.C. So we had some time in D.C., and then I moved to Philadelphia, and I worked in down Center City, Philly, and... Um, in a restaurant, and and I did art stuff, you know, more or less. Um, but I was pretty distracted. But I was also getting some street smarts, which I never really had, because um, I never really live in an urban environment per se. But eventually, I ended up back in South Dakota and was ready to um, go back to school, and was you know working part time to kind of keep up the expense of that. But I was fortunate enough to go to the University of South Dakota, which is in a town called Vermilion. It's right on the uh, Missouri River in the southeast part of the state, so it's a much warmer climate, considering. And I really thrived there. It was a really, really great university. I finished a Bachelor's of Fine Arts degree, and I, I, did, I studied a lot of political science. I had a, quite a, a great group of friends that were in the political science department. And so that was a very fun mix for me, um, taking the political science classes, art history classes, and all these studio courses. Um, was just really like the ideal university, that you would have all of these conversations from people who were scientists and studying law school or English literature and, and the arts and dance. Like, so I really thrived, and I really loved it, and that's where I started working at the Ethnographic Museum. Uh, at the, okay. called the, yeah, the WHO for... circle now, yeah. Yeah, exactly, and so that was a pretty rich experience, and I, um, I really had a big background in printmaking, which was right. really involved a lot more, I think, experimental work, um, because of, I was also still interested in... I did a lot of collage and montage, a lot of photography work, and then I became really good at etching, right. making etchings and producing etchings. And I ended up after, you know, I had a really great internship at that same little um, ethnographic museum, the WH Over, right out of college. And then I ended up moving to, um, to D.C. And I waited tables, earned some money, and really got into the culture of D.C. And I moved there particularly because I had family there. Right. My two sisters were living right. out there, and I, it was really good for me to be around them. And then eventually I went to New Mexico, and I, I had applied, I remember, to Chicago Art Institute and the San Francisco Art this Institute. Would be for your MFA. Yeah, for okay. an MFA. And I went to those schools, and I thought, you know, I, when I, I liked them all, except I thought Chicago was just way too cold. And, and maybe a little too urban at that time, too, even though D.C. was pretty groovy for getting around. 
But when I went to New Mexico and I saw that art department and I saw the graduate studios that they gave you, I just couldn't believe and it. And what was the school there? University of New Mexico, okay. which is in Albuquerque. It's in Albuquerque. Yeah, okay, and they yes. have a huge brand new, they had a big brand new Antoine Predock design building. Oh, that beautiful. was where the new art department was. And the old art department was literally, um, it was the, it had been made into the graduate studio studios for the graduates. So that I ended up finished two graduate degrees there, an MA and an MFA, and worked um, with um, some wonderful uh, photographers and painters. And then was it time to come to New York? No, I actually, I actually took it to started on the teaching circuit. Okay. So I, um, I always thought I'd end up in Los Angeles, particularly right. after living in New Mexico for so long. There was quite a trajectory to, um, to the West Coast, but I ended up getting a teaching job right out of right out of grad school. And you, you know, hard hard to imagine when I think back at this. I ended up going back to South Dakota to oh. my alma mater oh. and teaching um, teaching printmaking. Right. Um, and you know there were there were things at that time um, which really was really great about that uh, to be back in a place I hadn't lived for a while and to reconnect with that landscape and and to live with my sister and, and her husband who's a wonderful photographer and I lived there just a couple of years and I kind of worked the circuit between um, Minneapolis Omaha back down to Albuquerque and LA and that was kind of my exhibiting circuit okay. was that was my route Making and showing prints Showing prints and yeah. doing paintings and right. getting shows and just on the go and and you know the cost of living is so inexpensive it's there affordable. you could yeah. yeah and and I had a lot of help from you know people that you've known over the time especially my family too they were really cool they're like hey come and you know bring some portfolio of your work up here and let's show it to some people and blah 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 right. so those were kind of interesting things that happened and evolved over time. And then um, I ended up getting a really great NEA grant. Oh, yeah. So like 1996 was that boon year. I got a great grant. I got hired at the Kansas City Art Institute. And I got um, a, a residency, an artisan residency at the Bema Center for Contemporary Art. And it was also the, the year that at the very beginning of the year I went to Southeast Asia. And it's the first time I'd ever been to, to any part of Asia. And it was really a, this expansive, wonderful thing. You have like to go to a Muslim country, um, I should say to go to a Buddhist country where people are just so devout and respectable, um, but just also so much of the culture and the, a real different vibe. Where did you go in particular? Um, Thailand and Laos, okay. and then down into the Sia. And were you Sia into Thailand. meditation and all that at that time? Yeah. Okay, so you yeah. were appreciating what was going on. For sure. Yeah, but not to the extent that I am now right. with my practice, right. but um, yeah, that was pretty great. So that was a big year, and um, the Bema Center was, was also poignant because it, uh, I ended up there for four months, and that allowed me to sit still and in a sieve through all these experiences that I've just been going and going and going. Um, and so, fortunately, um, I started a group of a body of work that still seems to be, I can still converse with in some aspect Artists. or another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I went, moved to Kansas City and I taught at the Art Institute for three years. And it's at, that's when I met my husband. Right. Michael, Michael Reese, and that was such a, you know, another very pivotal life thing to, to uh, find your, your mate, and um, he as a sculptor and had had a lot of experiences living in New York, 
Um, we both ended up moving to, to uh, St. Louis. He first had a job at WashU, and then they hired me as well, which was awesome. And we were there two years, and um, then he got offered a job in New York to work full-time. And he was ready to come back because he'd had lived here and gone to school and right. been at Yale and been part of the Whitney one of the Whitney, Whitney Biennials, and was just had some really great opportunities ahead of him. As a matter of fact, John, he was in the he moved back here the year that you two were both in that exhibit. Uh, Bit strange. Yeah, we were both in the show at the Whitney. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Two thousand one. That's right. Yeah. It was a great show. It was a great show. Yeah, I remember it well. So that um, I spent had another year. So Michael moved to. Um, here for one year when I was still a year we were living apart um, when I was still teaching at WashU and um, and then moved here I moved here like right at the end of 2001 right. beginning of 2002 so this that was the real changing point for for this particular part of the world this you know New York and post 9-11 and all the all the stuff that comes with that and um, we're still living out um, <laughs> we're still out there yeah. on the light fantastic trying to figure it out yeah yeah living the art life yeah I know how that is yeah cool but all those places have been really uh, endearing and quite supportive of me and my work and all the places that I've lived at and taught at and traveled to and particularly those that you know that I either went to school at or I taught at there's still communities that I have a little bit of presence in professionally and with many friends, and I really, really love that. And I and I work at, in a sense, um, keeping those kind of friendships alive. And some of that maybe is coming from a big family. You, there's just it's easy for Even me. Bigger family now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. it's just huge, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, as you know, you're part of this sure. much larger, expansive place of New York. Okay, so um, at this point, the one thing I like to talk about is um, creativity, your relationship to your creative self, and sort of where you think that creativity is coming from, or just, you know, in larger terms, spiritual terms, that can, to address that kind of energy. Yeah, that's nice. Those are, those are good questions. Um, there's a kind, they're the kind of questions that uh, make me pause a little bit because um, I'm a person who will go to sleep at night imagining how to resolve a painting um, or recall and cull up an image that I've seen in some place, be it a museum or a show, from maybe that day or maybe from 10 years ago. And uh, I have a very, very active mind and very active imagination. And so the creativity stuff, I think, comes through both uh, a kind of wandering, a space of wandering in the imagination, and a kind of discipline. And uh, that discipline of literally either taking a photograph, uh, writing down a mark in a sketchbook, making a list of ways in which a series of maybe protocols of around an action to various ideas and so one of the things that um, I do and I like to do is I literally like to just w write down short phrases or um, or words periodically even through the day or particularly when I go right into the studio and start working um, I'll 
I also really like listening to podcasts, you know, so I like to listen to certain things or I'll just really shut it down and like literally even put earplugs in my ears. So I'll kind of live in these kind of two worlds where I'm informed by maybe an interview um, or I'm really, really quiet and I'll just do a kind of stream of thought. And from those things, then I may do a sketch. Um, and so I've been working on these series of architectural studies, which I was re- chatting about, um, the period rooms, and then other these kind of notions of nature and these kind of sit, um, you know, set-ins for nature. And is that something that comes from my backyard, or is that something that is already, you know, been delivered in some other form? And um, how immediate is that? Is it right? So I like thinking about those various ways in which those I'm really attracted to one those ideas, the different ways in which things are mediated, yeah. and my access to them, and also ways in which I may just put myself right in the middle of, let's say, that museum or my backyard, and yeah, respond. that's really good. No, that's really good stuff. That's really good. Yeah, and I think what you're pointing out, uh, uh, which is true for me, is that um, there's not a single source, but it's really the resonance amongst all those influences that we try to negotiate and, and try to balance. And I think that totally. does show, especially in this piece we're discussing, it's showing this balance of these sort of multi forces, multi influences, yeah. and trying to negotiate those into some sort of personal statement. Yeah. There's a lot to be said, you know, in a way for just the literally starting something uh, or being stuck in the middle yeah. of a very complicated painting. I mean, I, I, in a sense, have a pretty sloppy studio practice, you know, where I'll just have stacks of drawings and stacks of photographs or things I've clipped out of a book and anything from old encyclopedias or whatever, various source material. But those things may feed this body of work. And part of those that body of work may just be stacked against the wall or I just move it to the side for a while. As a matter of fact, I just took out this drawing, this gorgeous drawing that I did about maybe a year and a half ago because I was really interested um, in the architect um, Edmund Stone. He did the first um, Museum of Art and Design building prior to the building that's up there now. Um, And Edward Durrell Stone, let me say that properly. So the other night, here I am on Google and just looking at all of Edward Durrell Stone's interiors, partly because two years prior I had done this drawing of one of his interiors on a huge print and the print was from a small little painting, this weird painting I'd made of, of, of Lunarias, right? And the paintings right. were really chunky monkey. I didn't, you know, I just thought, you know, this looks like a document of something. I'm kind of documenting something here. So I photographed it. I blew it up. I augmented it just a bit in the computer space. And then I made this gorgeous thick rag print. Right. And then I later took a, a white white acrylic paint just like I would uh, as if I was maybe painting on a little porcelain plate and did this huge interior space on this and these two dynamic worlds just talk to each other this still motion and this other very ecstatic kind of active colorful thing yeah I love it I love what you're describing and I love uh, 
that you're so trusting of the process and that you're able to move fluidly with the seemingly few bounds. You're running wild. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, like in South Dakota, like totally. uh, in the studio, you're right. But when, and so what is, what is the energy there? What's happening? What's coming through? Or is it, where's it originating? What's, what's yeah. driving it? What do you think? That's a mystery, you know, isn't it? Right? That's Where the hell is that come from? <laughs> or if you even think about it, do you even no. like, kind of like say, well, this, are you in the middle of it? You wake up and you're just kind of saying, oh, look at this going on. It's... Yeah. You know, I, I think it happens quite, quite um, frequently and, and really sort of unconsciously in, on one hand where you just see things that you go, that is so interesting. I love that. And often, you know, it could be a building, it could be something that exists in real time, it could be a photograph, it could be a painting, um, you know, and I'll just have it around me. I'll maybe take a photograph of something and then I'll go back and look at those, I'll, you know. And, and so... You're in some what, kind of dialogue with it, or yeah. it's turning you on in some way. Yeah, or, you bet, you bet. And then, and then yeah. that's that uh, kind of uh, vi- vibration that it causes. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It needs to come out somewhere. Exactly. You want to transmit I, it somewhere. I was just having this discussion with Michael the other night um, about all the things, our bedrooms, our bedrooms when we were kids and what did they look like. Right. And I was really hip. Like I had, I was so into macrame and making all these things that are back in style now, which I love, you know. And I had this huge op art poster that in the middle of these fabulous orbs, it looked like a Bridget Riley poster. I mean, I'm 14 and it said now, right? And, and, you know, and I'm I'm, listening to Grace Slick and having little albums. But also I was stringing beads. I was so into stringing beads, I'd had a whole wall of just hand-strung beads, right. you know, that right. I would get at the second-hand store. Destined for the creative life. For totally. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, there was even like... Something's like, moving. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you had freedom, and that's a really yeah. big part of it, I think. Totally. You had freedom to do it, you had the resources, you had access to the materials, you had a place to put them. Yeah. We didn't have like a lot of money yeah. we but we knew where to find stuff like the salvation army was awesome exactly chips of wood and totally. stuff you find and yeah you can make it out of shells or sticks i mean look at mandy goldsworthy what he does with boy no kidding you know, little rocks and things yeah, exactly. yeah. it's all context but i think we, totally. you had that feedback loop uh, uh initiated early on you saw the positive benefits of the creative process and yeah. you never looked back yeah for sure. So that's terrific. That's yeah. terrific. Um, so what I also like to ask is, um, like, because a lot of people that listen to this uh, and who do uh, drawing your own path as a practice, and uh, we often uh, are looking for prompts and ways of getting underway and exercises and working practices and things. If you have any studio tips or suggestions or little things people can do to get going or. You know, fun stuff you like. Yeah. Um, one. There's an. I have a number of things to add in that context um i have a little mini tramp okay in my studio and sometimes i just go and start jumping up and down on that mini tramp and look at all the stuff i have started things on the walls things on the tables because i'll be like oh what should i start working on and and then always there's there's always that just thing of just start like maybe you're just and sometimes to start because i'll be i may have a little hesitation 
I pick up a piece of sandpaper and I keep them all over the studio and I'll just start sanding on a part of a painting. I'll be like, you know, like I'm erasing it right. or I'm reconsidering some part of it. And then maybe I'll it go... It could be on paper too. Absolutely. And then I'll work on that palette. You know, I'll like mix, get the, get the stuff mixed up and right. just some days I have to really tidy. Like I've been in this phase lately where I just tidy this one area and then open it up. Right. And then other things I, I like to do, and I do it pretty frequently too, is I do a, I do a sitting meditation, right. and I go through about seven different um, movements and breath work, and each set, each seventh or each one of those is three minutes long, and I time it. Okay. So I do a chant, I do some movement, and then really what, and this is from working with a, a teacher, one of my Kundalini teachers for years, she's like, you know, this will just help get you out of your head and into a little if different energy space. I'm like, all right, let's do that. So I, that's one of the things I do too. And then um, another thing, again, interestingly enough, is I really like to go for a jog. Okay. Like I like to go for a jog, yeah. have a little bite to eat, yeah. and and then just turn turn the media off and you sometimes. Make, you make some space for yourself to make yeah. things. Yeah. You make some space to work, you tidy it, and yeah. you make some time for yourself, and mm -hmm. that's going to be the creative time. Yeah. yeah. And you get, if you need to step away and get prepared, and then you come in and just yeah. open it up. But you know, it's interesting, and I think it's different for everybody, but I really love to work at night. Yeah. I find that in the daytime, I tend to, I'm in this, I'm in my office space. I'm writing, I'm like, I'm doing some stuff on social media, but I'm working on all the different con conversations that one is constantly having, yeah. right, as a professional artist. Yeah. And and to make that transition is usually through with yoga and running, and then I'm, I'm really in the studio. And um, there's something really, really great about that. And, and oh, who was the artist? Oh my God, what is her name? She wrote something called A Hundred Things. Have you ever seen that? Oh yeah. Oh, and one of the things that in the 100 things list is just sit in your studio. Just like, just sit there, <laughs> you know, and eventually you'll be like, ah, I'm going to work on that. Yeah. I think yeah. I'm going to work on that. Just waiting for the, for the yeah. energy to come up. Totally. Yeah. yeah, but sometimes just the sitting part is like, uh, that's like the bus ride. That's like the way you get there. Yeah. And unless you stop, you don't get there. Yeah. Like the, the, the doors won't open unless you're quiet for a while. I, totally. I do find that happens. Totally. Yeah. There's always the notion of taking action. And um, I really do think the joy factor is big. Like, Absolutely. And the curiosity factor yeah. is huge. And so when we, even we talk about this in um, various you know, modalities of thought is this, I, the concept of fulfillment, yeah. you know, what, what is fulfillment? How, how fulfilling, yeah, you what know, what is it success, right? Yeah. Success might not be something that um, is, is saleable in a gallery. Or even yet, that you know how to gauge, oh, you know right? How to gauge, right? Somebody else might gauge it, but in and of itself, um, you, you may not really have access to the language of that as well you know how many things that you don't even own them anymore or you know right. wherever they are and you just think god you know there's certain there are a few things that i have made that i'm like i wonder where those those things are i really miss them huh. you never got good photographs of them or, and maybe that's irrelevant on one hand uh, because the process of the creative part of um yeah that's what i think you know, i think i think just moving the energy is the primary importance and the degree to which you contextualize it and, and do things with it professionally is secondary. 
yeah. to, to moving the energy. And once the energy's moved, where it goes, it goes. Yeah, that's but, true. But, but getting it out, I think, is, yeah. uh, is what it's about. I had, I had this teacher. So, so Marianne's just like waving it everywhere. Oh, no, some friends have all come the, by. All of a sudden, people are coming <laughs> by. So, uh, we can say hi in a minute, but I wanted, it made me think about, um, oh, God. One of my old professors in grad school is the uh, art critic David Hickey. Oh, sure. Oh, Brilliant wonderful. guy. Yeah, great. Oh, my God. Great. So David Hickey Air said... Air guitar. Air guitar. Yeah. Um, great book. Essays on beauty. Yeah. Um, he'd said, one thing about artwork is that once you have made it, you it's not really yes. yours. So Hickey would drive home this point is that you... You may have made and authored this piece of art, but it's no longer yours. It's the culture's. Yeah, yeah. It belongs the to world. the culture. No, it's true. Yeah. That's that transition from inward to outward. Yeah. Yeah. It's Wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah, and now you can put it out in a minute on Facebook and yeah. let it let it be owned, <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. And people will know you. Okay, we're going to socialize now. Okay, so. great. Cool. Have fun, everybody. Goodbye. Oh, thanks, John. <laughs>